Hello and welcome to another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this podcast we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. Thanks for listening. This is our 99th episode so one step closer to our 100th episode landmark. You can give our Facebook page a like and or follow our Twitter account at Turkey Book Talk. Check out the archive and notes to every show at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com and if you're a fan of the podcast please do rate or review it on whatever platform you listen on. Remember to consider signing up to become a Turkey Book Talk member for exclusive extras and to help us keep going. Joining up as a signed up member gets you transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk in PDF form via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. IB Taurus Bloomsbury has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series, including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics, journalism, the Middle East and Europe. The archive was written over the course of five years and used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member and get all that, all we have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. New episodes go out every two weeks, so the monthly membership price is no more than $6. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome, but so long as you pledge that $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on with this latest episode. In it we hear from Deniz Çiftçi. He's the author of The Kurds and the Politics of Turkey, Agency, Territory and Religion. Once again, this is a book that was recently published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury, which means that it's included in the 35% discount deal if you purchase it as a Turkey Book Talk member. The book is a thorough account of the diversity of interest and opinion among the Kurds of Turkey, addressing various differences in language, tribal affiliation, religion and ideology. While news coverage and analysis often considers the Kurds to be a homogenous group with unified demands, this book paints a more sophisticated and nuanced picture. The book is based on extensive on-the- ground research in multiple countries and across many different cities in Turkey itself. I started by asking Deniz Çiftçi to talk about what prompted him to start writing the book in the first place. The main motivation behind writing this book was to present or to show that the Kurdish politics is really divided though it is not homogeneous. I wanted to show that there are different groups, different political actors, new actors, which are driven by ideology, religion, a relationship with the, the Turkish state or economic powers. All these new actors, they have different social, political, ideological and religious backgrounds. I try to present how religion, ideology, relationship with the Turkish state, economic interest, regional developments or other factors created new actors and how these new actors interact with each other and what they think about the future sort of the Kurdish politics and the Kurdish issue in Turkey. 
one of the central tensions that you allude to there is this one between sort of religious Kurds and the Kurdish national movement, really, because despite the fact that a lot of the sort of rebellions, you know, going back centuries, really, including the uh, Sheikh Zayed rebellion in 1925, uh, they've apparently been religiously motivated in many senses, but they've also had this Kurdish cultural aspect as well. So that indicates this very central sort of tension between these two factors. And also, generally speaking, you know, the Kurdish regions of Turkey are kind of more religious and more conservative uh, than some other parts of Turkey. So what do you make of that division and how did you reflect that in the book? How does it play out today? Religion, since the end of the 18th century, has been a main component of the Kurdish ethnic identity and the Kurdish national identity. In the 1880 with the Sheikh Ubaidullah, then with the Sheikh Said Rebellion, and in the, the later movements, religion was the main component of the Kurdish identity, Kurdish nationalism. But between 1960 and 1980, and after 1980 with the PKK, uh, new social or leftist movements, they tried to debase Kurdish nationalism, Kurdish ethnicity and identity over new factors rather than religion. But when they realize that excluding religion will really not be so helpful for uh, social mobilization, so political mobilization, that's why PKK began to, to include religion into their political aims, into their ideology, and even into their future plans. So religion in that way is a main sociological but also political factor in construction of the Kurdish politics. So based on this, I mean, the, the factor of the religion in Kurdish society, either Sunni Muslim or Alawi Muslims, HDP, PKK or other main actors, they constructed their policies through religion. When we look at these groups in the region, even during my fieldwork, almost all of the Kurdish groups, PKK, Hezbollah, Hakpa, Kadeb, Azadi, tribes, let's say, I mean, the AKB-related Kurds, all these groups, some of them are leftist, socialist, let's say, I mean, the nationalists, despite their all ideological differences, all of them mention, without taking religion into consideration, we can't sort out the Kurdish issue. That's why religion is, to be honest, the main factor either for Sunni Kurds or for Alawi Kurds. How does that manifest itself practically? Because I've heard it said, you know, that that turn has happened in the last few years. You know, the sort of Kurdish movement parties or representatives have recognised that they have to appeal also to a kind of religious sensibility. But what do they do in that sense? I mean, what? how is that reflected in policy? Because on the surface, you look at um, you know, the HDP, you know, they have very sort of socially liberal policies in many senses. They're very much in favour of uh, women's rights and, and whatnot. It's not, it's not really a traditionally sort of conservative or religious platform that they're standing on. So what do they do? You know, what, what is the practical effect of this sort of realization of the importance of religion? First of all, it starts at the ideological level. I mean, when you look at the PKK, HDP and related groups, the drafts, constitutions, articles or manifesto, they were mentioning Marxism, communism, socialism almost in each page. But after 2000s, most of these groups, including HDP and PKK, they avoid to use the Marxism, communism, leftism or Maoism or all the terms which represent an ideological uh, orientations. They started this with uh, softening their ideological stance. At the local 
level, they started including more religious people into their branch. I mean, if you visit the Diyarbakir, Mardin, Hakkari, Agri, I mean, all these, the Kurdish society, the Kurdish people dominated cities, the Kurdish cities, the, the head of the branch or the members have a religious background. But also, more practically, HDP included some religious figure into their lists. Al-Tantan, the f- former MPO of the Diyarbakir, I mean, the Nimet Erdogan, he was an imam and recent uh, HDP MP or Adem Yavuzel. He's also MP from the, the, the one and he's member of a religious community, Zahra community in Turkey. So practically too, they include religious names into their list and they wanted to show that the main point behind their uh, construction aid politics is being liberal, democrat. They're not really so leftist or so rightist oriented. To show this, they changed with the local branch. They included, I mean, religious MPs into their ranks. And if you analyze their narratives, we see that they use also quite religious narratives. More practically, some of the HDP, I mean, members, peoples, they visit the mosque, they go to the, I mean, Friday prayings, they are fasting, they're with the religious groups, even at the elections, they cooperated with the Kurdish religious group, with the Azadi initiative, with the Zehra community. All these are practical samples that shows that HDP changed or had to change, have to change its policy of religion. Now, a couple of years, we uh, we published an episode on Hezbollah, which is this kind of religious Kurdish militant group that was very active in the 1990s, and it sort of fought against the PKK for a lot of that time. And obviously, it's not active as a militant group anymore, but its inheritor is this party, Hudapar. It's a pretty small party with quite limited appeal, but it uh, it has a certain voice on the ground. Just talk about Hezbollah and Hudapar, you know, what was Hezbollah and how much of a symbol of this sort of social religious sentiment in the southeast of Turkey does it reflect on the ground? I mean, the Hezbollah, it may not appear on the ground, it, it may disappear, but Hezbollah never uh, buried their guns. Still, they're active, but under different names. As a group, under the name of the Hezbollah, they disappeared, but there are still some small groups that Hezbollah affiliated under the different names. Even when I talked with some of the Hezbollah members, they say we just silence our guns. This is also confirmed during my interviews by some of the Hezbollah members. Around 700 or 1,000 Hezbollah militant groups on the members or armed members still active in the Middle East. Some in Turkey, some in Iraq, some in Syria, even some of them joined the Al-Qaeda. So as an armed group, there is an Hezbollah, but they are just not active because they wanted to give a chance to the Hudapa. So what is the Hudapa then? Of course, it's kind of, it is obvious that these groups come out through the Hezbollah and most of the uh, Hudapa's members, they are former Hezbollah members. Even they uh, provisional heads, some of the, the representatives, uh, even some of the they members they shown for municipal elections or for the MP. They were the former Hezbollah members. They were prisoned. They were punished. So there is an organic link between Hudapa and the Hezbollah. In that way, Hudapa is more active, and as a political party, they are getting power every day. How they are getting power? Uh, they touch the Kurdish people's sensitive points. They are religious, and they really play with religion and how religion can make a connection between them and the Kurds. In Bingal, in Van, in Agri in Hakkari, in Batman. In, in these areas, uh, Hudapa are getting power and they are really becoming more stronger than PKK or HDP in some local areas, particularly in Bingöl. 
It's a religious party, but when they realize that being religious is not enough to survive in the Kurdistan, they also begin to play with the Kurdish identity. They become to act in the civil area, following more liberal policies, and further managing the Kurdish identity. Because before 2000, uh, I mean, between 1980 and 2000, you can't see any mention of the Kurdish identity, Kurdish nation, or nationality. But after 2000, they come to behave as a Kurdish national religious party. I don't know how much it is kind of sponsored or supported by the Turkish government, but this group play with the Kurdish identity, Kurdish nationalism, and in their newspapers, magazines, TV talks, uh, let's say all other publications, they use religion and Kurdish nation uh, kind of together. Playing with these two facts makes them more powerful, even a rival power in Kurdish area against the HDP. So, to summarize what Hudapa is, it is a religious but also pragmatic Kurdish national group. One of the uh, the other key areas of the book is this question of tribal divides, which are also still quite important. They're not talked about very often on the national level, but uh, they're still there under the surface, really, locally in a lot of places in the southeast, I believe. Should we focus more on them as a driver of political allegiances on the ground? I mean, how do tribal divisions have an effect in national politics these days? Are they still potent? They're not the main factor, but still they're a factor. In some Kurdish areas, there are some big tribes. I mean, they, the, the number is reached to 500,000, even 1 million, uh, particularly in uh, Shanlu Urfa, in Batman, somewhere in Diyarbakir, and in Van. In these areas, these tribal groups, they have power to determine the, the local politics. And most of these tribes, they have connection with the uh, AKP or uh, the, the recent Turkish government. In that way, the tribes, we can't consider them as the main actor, the, the powerful actor for determination of construction of Kurdish politics but they have power to change local politics. That's why they work closely with the Turkish uh, security forces, local authorities they take part in the AKP at the local levels. Their power in that way could be regarded uh, regarding the local politics, not the Kurdish politics at the regional or in the Middle East. And uh, presumably uh, migration from the southeast to big cities or from rural areas to big cities in the southeast has had some kind of effect on tribal ties. I mean, the last few decades in in Turkey have seen a huge migration from rural to urban areas. Uh, How has that affected this tribal angle in Kurdish politics particularly? As it is in general of Turkey, in Kurdish region too, there is a modernization process and there's the urbanization process taking place since 1960. With the modernization and with the organizations, most of the Kurdish tribes or the Kurdish tribe members, they left their village and they moved to the cities. With the modernization and urbanizations, uh, the people, the Kurdish individual, they met with the new identities. Could be working class identity, the city identity, could be, I mean, the identity of new groups. All this uh, strongly destroyed the tribal identity or their tribal affiliations. So uh, urbanization and modernizations in that way kind of destroyed the Kurdish tribal structure in general. But still, we can't say this for a majority of the Kurds because in some Kurdish areas, despite all these modernization and organizations, the tribal affinities still exist. Maybe not in Istanbul, Ankara, Izmir, but the Kurds, they moved from village to the cities in Kurdistan or in Kurdish regions, such as in Urfa, such as in Kars, in Agri, in Bingöl. Although they changed 
they placed, they migrated to the Kurdish cities or the city centers. Tribal affinities still exist and they still have power to construct the Kurdish politics. Tribal identity in that way, in some areas, it exists. But in general, in the western part of Turkey, we can't talk about it. But the Kurds, they moved to the western part of Turkey or to the metropolitan cities. Their tribal identity is considerably dissolved or they have obtained new identities. That is why the Kurds migrated into the western part of Turkey overwhelmingly voted for HDP or the Kurdish politics, but the Kurdish tribes, they migrated from their village or similar areas to the Kurdish city centers, they usually vote for AKP. Now, we've mentioned that migration, internal migration or urbanization, I think it's a key point to remember, really, because a very significant number of Kurds live outside of the southeast in Turkey. Uh, and indeed, Istanbul is, is the city with the world's largest Kurdish population. I mean, how has that affected things? What happens to Kurds' sense of identity or nationalism after migrating? What effect does uh, assimilation have, really? In the Kurds, they migrated to the western part of Turkey, particularly Izmir, Ankara, Antalya, and Istanbul. There is a level of assimilation, but despite this level of assimilation, there is a rising nationalism in the Kurdish, the Kurds, and particularly the Kurdish youth. Most of the Kurds they live in Istanbul, Ankara, Izmir, I mean Antalya, they can't speak Kurdish. They born in these cities, even they haven't seen the Kurdish region once in their life and can't speak Kurdish. Like they don't live the Kurdish culture. Despite all this level of assimilation, they vote for HDP. They support. The Kurdish groups and they join PKK to some extent or they support other Kurdish national groups not only PKK or HDP so all this shows that despite the level of assimilation there is a rising nationalism national consciousness within this curse particularly the Kurdish youths I was doing my field work in Ghazi Osman Pasha they even that's, uh, that's a neighborhood in, uh, in Istanbul yeah, uh, most of the Kurdish youths between 16 and 25, they can't speak Kurdish. And when I ask them, even most of them, they say we haven't been in Kurdistan before. But all of them, they had some Kurdish necklace, they had some Kurdish flags. I mean, they were supporting the HDP. Uh, all whatever they were telling me and saying to me represent the Kurdish nationalism. That could be, I mean, seem like a contradiction. High level of assimilation, but also high level of nationalism. How does this happen? This could be explained through the relationship between the Kurds and the Turks in two metropolitan cities. Most of the Kurdish youths, they told me, they remember their Kurds. Their Kurdish feelings are kind of getting tense when they watch the Turkish TV channel, when they see the, the Turkish nationalism, or all other things that represented the Turkish identity. Rising of Turkish identity, Turkish nationalism, reminds these Kurds who they are, what they are. And this is what we call diaspora nationalism. This diaspora nationalism is not based on a real national identity identity. But in time, most of these Kurdish youths or the Kurdish population in the western part of Turkey, they will begin to learn Kurdish, they will demand for Kurdish identity, culture, and this nationalism uh, will demand more concrete steps for construction of identity. That is why most of my participants, they told me they can't speak Kurdish, but they wanted to learn Kurdish. And uh, they haven't been in Kurdistan, but most of them, they told me the first thing they're going to do to visit the Kurdistan and see what is and what is the Kurdistan. So all this Kurdish nationalism is rising over a kind of empty ground because of the assimilation. But this nationalism will construct the Kurdish ethnic identity in time.
Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that a bit later, but we may as well address it now. I mean, just expand a bit more, you know, how much the young people's political preferences differ from previous generations. I mean, there's been quite a lot of talk in recent years about how sort of young generations are becoming more radicalised than previous generations of Kurds. I mean, is that true? I mean, what are the big new developments, not just in Istanbul, but elsewhere in Turkey? I can say it is definitely true. Particularly the Kurdish youths between 16 and 25 or later, they are radicalized. When I talk to them, even the first thing they were asking me, whether I am Kurdish or not, whether I can speak Kurdish or not. The first question they were asking during my fieldwork, not only in Istanbul, in Ankara, in Bursa, in uh, Antalya, in Izmir, or in other uh, Turkish metropolitan cities, the Kurdish youths, the new Kurdish generations, or the second and the third Kurdish generations in Turkish metropolitan cities, they are getting radicalized, they are nationalized, they vote for HDP, they demand for learning Kurdish language, they, they try to do, live to the Kurdish culture as much as they can, and they, they narrative, they discourse, all this shows that, I mean, at least showed me, the new Kurdish generation radicalized, they are nationalized, and they have more interest into the, the politics, particularly in Istanbul, in Asenyut, in Gaziosman Pasha, in Kichikchekmece, in Bağcılar, or in Umraniye, the Kurdish youths, Kurdish young generation, in that places, they were more active. And they're doing this political activism either by joining a political party or at their works, their social community, social networks, through the social media. They kind of represent or showing how they are Kurdish and how they live a Kurdish life and what should they do for the Kurdish politics. All this practice, my practical experience, fieldwork, participant observations, I can say showed me that, yes, new generation, second and then the new generation recent generations are nationalized. So the book spends a lot of time uh, on the ideology of uh, Abdul Ojalan, uh, how that's developed, you know, how it's changed over time and its effect on the ground. But I, uh, I also want to talk about Ojalan, the man here, you know, what he represents today, his authority over the Kurdish movement and uh, also his relations with the state. Obviously, he's in jail at the moment. He's been there serving a life sentence for almost 20 years. And uh, he's in this curious position because he still has, I think, considerable authority over uh, PKK militants. But the government also uh, sees him as an asset really to use you know the peace process was carried out through him and his orders basically shaped the, the retreat of PKK militants at the time um, and of course you know more recently the government turned to him the week before the, the recent Istanbul mayoral election runoff uh, releasing a letter from him apparently calling for the uh, for HDP voters to stay neutral just talk about this position of Erdogan you know how important is he still is his role or influence changing is it weakening or what kind of role is he playing at the moment First of all, majority of the Kurds respect Abdullah Öcalan. But most of the Kurds, when issue comes to the Kurdish national interests, they began to tell Öcalan, stop. And this is the first time in the Kurdish political history of the PKK, or let's say after, two, after the 1990s, the Kurds, including HDP and even some fractions in PKK, they began to tell Öcalan, we respect you, you created all these movements, we owe you a lot, but you have limits. And the recent elections clearly showed how Öcalan has limits. He can't really determine Kurdish politics on the ground. During my fieldwork in Iraq, in Europe, and also in Turkey, and sometimes in Syria, I realized that most of the Kurdish political elites told me Öcalan created this group, he provides perspectives, we benefit from him a lot, but still he's a prisoner. He's prisoned by Turkish government, and we don't know how really... Uh, his sayings are independent of the Turkish government. 
That's why they said we should respect Ejelan, but on the ground, we should make the politics. And the last election clearly showed that majority of the HDP supporters, they say Ojalan respects you, but we will not listen to you this time. PKK, despite Ojalan warnings, they interacted with the Iran, they avoid to make cooperation with the Turkish government sometimes, they approach the United States, and that's why Ojalan often repeats that PKK and HDP try to replace me with a new leadership, hinting Salahattin Demetash. So Öcalan is a power, I can't deny this, but he has limits. Kurdish politics showed Öcalan his limits. Now, uh, the book, in large part, is about sort of divisions of interest between various groups. And often there's a kind of shorthand where people sort of talk about the PKK and the HDP as being one and the same. And obviously, the base of support is quite similar and it, maybe it has the same grassroots, but uh, it probably wouldn't be fair to draw a direct line between them. There's been moments of tension between the two. And obviously, they're completely different. I mean, one is a legal political party or still legal at the moment. Uh, and one of them is a uh, outlawed militant group. I mean, how should we see this relationship between the PKK and the HDP? Is it changing? How is it at the moment and how has it changed in the last few years? I mean, there is a relationship to some extent. Well, the HDP includes new, let's say, social, political identities into its ranks. I mean, HDP cooperated with the Azadi Initiative, or Azadi group, which is quite religious. HDP, in a way, cooperated with the Zahra religious groups, or most of the religious groups, they cooperated with the HDP. But all these groups, Zahra, Azadi, some of the Kurdish tribes, some of the other religious groups, they really have tension and clash fighting with the PKK. So they may serve to the same purpose, they may share the same ideology to some extent, but on the ground, HDP tried, I mean, some fractions within the HDP tried to distance itself from the PKK. Doing politics on the ground in Turkey is not what PKK understood or understand at the top of the Kandil Mountains. They're quite different things. Although we share same identity, same, I mean, political goal, uh, the things has been changed on the ground. So we can't do whatever PKK tell us. We can't do whatever PKK, let's say, suggest us. There is a kind of distance between PKK and some fractions uh, in HDP, particularly under the Salatin Demirtas leaderships. HDP further converted into a more, uh, let's say, liberal and uh, grassroots party. And they try to not cut, but lessen their connections uh, with the PKK. That's why during the municipality elections or the, the general elections, most of the members they were appointed or they were elected had an idea ideological contradiction and fighting with the PKK. HDP give these people a place and elected them. Politically, HDP tried to behave more independent of the PKK. And the recent developments, I think, will further push HDP to construct its politics independent of the PKK. Obviously, the government argues that they're both the same, and that's been the basis of the removals, really, of the uh, elected mayors of the Arbakar, Van, and Mardin in recent months. And there's also some arguments I've seen being made that, you know, perhaps if we see the PKK and the HDP as being distinct, you know, perhaps the sort of militant wing of uh, the Kurdish movement may be actually pleased at the recent removals because it kind of reinforces their argument about there being no political path forward. So armed insurrection is really the only alternative. I mean, what do you make of those arguments? 
So again, I mean, to clarify this point, whatever the Turkish, recent Turkish governments they do, they can't close down to the HDP because they know the results from the past. But without closing down to the HDP, they wanted to deactivate HDP, just make it under the party without any grassroots, limit its activity, limit its power, and squeeze HDP just in some local areas. And even let's say there is a relationship between PKK and HDP, it wouldn't be possible for HDP to have a connection or let's say transfer money to PKK since 2016. I mean, there is an emergency state of the emergency in Turkey. Almost all HDP brands, minus are under a severe control. All this makes impossible for HDP to transfer money or to have a really organic connection with the PKK. So another point, Turkish governments or the main power in Turkey, let's say, these new powers is based on how to refuse or how to minimize, how to reject or how to destroy the Kurdish politics. When they do this politics, some Kurdish fractions, some within HDP, some independent of HDP, they began to discuss politics or being active at the legal platform will not sort out the Kurdish issue because they say, or at least they began to think that despite our all positive steps, legal steps, the recent Kurdish governments and its allies try to destroy Kurdish identity, Kurdish politics. So the only way left for us to take arms and fight. And that is the only way with this issue. Military fighting or arm clash is currently the only solution to deal with that issue. Unfortunately, that is a rising idea in Kurdish youths, some fractions in HDP, but particularly in Kurdish diaspora in Europe. Majority of diaspora members, they began to chant about this. They say, if you don't have arms in hand, if you don't have hard power on the ground, then you will do nothing. And the recent Turkish policies kind of further strained these radical Kurdish groups' hands and further pushed them to support a military solution or military method. Obviously, events in Syria have played a massive role in various issues, really, in Turkey, but none more so than the Kurdish question. And it's really impossible to consider the calculations of actors on all sides in isolation to developments in Syria. Just talk about that side of things, you know, how developments in Syria have transformed the Kurdish issue in Turkey in recent years. More than 3,000 Kurds from Turkey, they lost their life during the fighting in Rojava or in uh, the Syria. More than 3,000 Kurds. This is kind of reported by the PYD, and probably it is more than this. And all these Kurds, they joined the PYD between 2014 and 2016 and 17. When we consider that number, this shows that political developments in Syria further nationalized the Kurdish issue in Turkey, further radicalized the Kurdish issues in Turkey, and kind of destroyed the territorial boundaries in their minds. For the Kurdish Turks, the Kurds in Syria, part of their heart, part of their territory, part of their national identity. Whatever happened in Syria immediately and strongly impact the Kurdish, uh, the Kurds lives in Turkey, the Turkish Kurds. And also with Turkish stance, quite serious stance against the, the Syrian Kurds, Turkish, I mean, involvement or military operation in the, the Syria. All this also contributed the Kurds' hatreds of the, the Turkish politics and close them to the Kurds in Syria. So Kurdish politics in Syria and Kurdish politics in Turkey kind of to the different side of the same coin. One affected another side immediately. I can say almost all of the Kurds or majority of the Kurds when they watched 
political developments in, in Syria, Turkey's intermediations, threats, or policies, they further become Kurdish. I heard this from many of the Kurds. They're voting for AKP, but they told me they're really not happy whatever Recep Tayyip Erdogan say about the Syria. They're not happy about the military operations. They're not happy about the nationalism against the Kurds in Syria. And all this kind of closer distance between the Kurds in Syria and in the Turkey and reminds them they're part of the same national identity. That, that's why the developments in Syria and Turkey will immediately and strongly affect the Kurdish politics. All my observations, fieldwork, talks with the Kurds in different countries and in different groups in Turkey show me what Kurds think about this. There's another issue as well. I mean, uh, just to conclude, obviously your book's about sort of divides among Kurdish groups. And when we're talking about fighters going over to Syria, there's a paradox as well, because while a lot of Kurdish origin people have fought in the ranks of the YPG in Syria, there's also, by some calculations, the majority of fighters who went from Turkey to fight for ISIS were of Kurdish origin as well. So it just kind of gets to, it sort of illustrates the uh, complexities. On the one hand, there's a kind of strong nationalist sentiment among many but at the same time because of the religious uh, the sentiment among other people who are of Kurdish origin they're fighting on opposite sides or they have fought in recent years on opposite sides uh, across the border so it's a kind of paradox there that um, doesn't often get mentioned really According to Turkish security forces reports, more than 2,000 Turkish citizens, they joined the ISIS. And it is estimated that around 500 or 600 of these joinings are ethnically Kurdish origin. But when we look at the Kurds, we see that overwhelming majority of the Kurds in ISIS are joined from Batman, from Adiyaman, from Bingöl, and the close areas. So in these three cities, religious groups, Hezbollah, and for a while, Al-Qaeda was quite active. I mean, and the Kurds from the Kurds from Turkey they joined ISIS or origin from these cities and most of them they had connection with a religious group or a radical extremist group in that areas. When you look at the other Kurdish areas, the number of the Kurds that joined ISIS from Diyarbakir, Agri, Kars, Igder, Mush, Van, Martin is really quite few. Most of the Kurds are joined from the three cities, Adiyaman, Bingöl, Batman, and also from the metropolitan cities. And these Kurds had already connection with Abu Hanzala group, he's also from Bingöl, with another religious extremist groups in past. I mean, this does not really give us an idea that all oh, the Kurds have an interest in ISIS, they joined ISIS in Turkey. But for the Kurds in Iraq, according to the Kurdish Norwegian government's reports, yeah, more than 1,000 Kurds joined, and just five hundred are from Halabja. Uh, but for Turkey, as I just said, Kurds from some cities or some areas or Kurds member of some religious groups joined ISIS, particularly Kurdish members of Abu Hanzala group who is originally from Bingöl and Boyanjik. That was Dennis Chifchi. Many thanks to him. Don't forget to consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support it. Membership gets you that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, including the book we were discussing in this episode indeed. You also get transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published, transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history and politics, literature and 
various other things. To become a member and get all that, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like the Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So please do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to WilliamJohnArmstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, once again, thank you very much for listening. So